We're into Luke chapter 9 as we make our journey through the gospel that Luke records for us, the account of the life, death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And we're going to read the first 20 verses together. And the title for our talk today was Sending, Feeding and Confessing, really landing on the three main points out of the four little sections that Luke has for us in these opening 20 verses of Luke chapter 9. I'd like to maybe put another title or a big subtitle underneath um, that just to give us what it is that I think Luke, as inspired by the Holy Spirit and therefore God, wants us to learn together from this section. That the disciples, and let's make it more general, disciples learn about Jesus's true identity through their trust of his complete sufficiency for them. So disciples learn about Jesus's true identity through their trust in his absolute sufficiency. I'd like us to read verse 20 of Luke 9 to begin with because Luke is bringing us to this climax. Luke 9 verse 20, then he, Jesus, said to them, the disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. That is the climax of the first opening section of Luke's gospel, I believe. He has carried us in his narrative of the experience, particularly of the disciples, that Jesus had chosen to be with him and near him. He has carried us along as they come into an understanding of who Jesus is to bring us to the same point as they arrive at, particularly as a consequence of what we'll read in the earlier part of the chapter, that Peter would declare on their behalf when they're asked, who do you say that I am? Peter replies, you are the Christ of God. It's one of the key moments in all of Luke's writings. And it's the purpose for which Luke has undertaken to write. If you remember all the way back to Luke chapter 1, he wanted to write an orderly account so that his friend might understand and have conviction about the things that he had been taught about Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, and my claim that this is a climax point, in Luke's Gospel 9 verse 20. Then let's read from verse 1 and we'll see how Luke stitches together the various incidents to help us arrive at the same challenge point for ourselves. So verse 1 of Luke 9. And he, that's Jesus, called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. 
and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And when the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we're to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about five thousand men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about fifty each. And they did so. And he had them all sit down, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said, A blessing over them. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say, Elijah, and others, that one of the prophets of old has arisen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. There is one message in this that Luke wants us to arrive at an understanding that Jesus is the Christ of God. And he reveals that by his promise to provide and his fulfilling of that promise. Uh, We have four sections in the passage that we've read, but really there there are three there because the little uh, section about Herod sets the scene for what comes in verse 18. Uh, Luke introduces a little bit of tension. He says that Herod, uh, the man in high places, even hears about what Jesus is doing And he's perplexed about what's happening. And the people are saying, well, it could be Elijah or it could be one of the prophets or it might be John the Baptist raised from the dead. It sort of sets a little bit of tension and then he goes back into the feeding of the 5,000 as it's well known. And then brings us to the climax point in verse 18 through to 20. But I want us to see in the three sections that when Jesus, firstly, when Jesus sent out the apostles on special mission, they learned through obedience to his commands to trust absolutely in what he said he would provide, which was the necessities for life. It was part of their coming to an understanding of the true identity of Jesus that they obeyed what Jesus said. And then the second bit is the feeding of the 5,000 plus people. I think we learn from that as Luke helps us that the disciples learned that Jesus is the saviour provider of all things that are needed by God's people. Because this was specifically a gathering of Jewish people. There was another massive feeding incident of 4,000 plus people, and that was in an area of Gentiles. But this was for the historical people of God. And Jesus here was demonstrating to the disciples 
that he was the one who provides for God's people. Therefore, he was claiming to be God. And then the third thing that we're going to finish off with is this confession that Peter makes on behalf of the disciples, those 12 that are referred to. They become convinced that this one is the Christ, the anointed one with special mission from God, who's been referred to in the Old Testament, that he is the Christ of God. They come to that understanding because they've seen what he's done and his fulfilling the promises that he has made and doing things that only God could do. So first little section from verse one down to verse six then, just to say something about the 12 as they're called. That's a a little description that's used by the gospel writers and also uh, we get it featuring in Luke's account in Acts, a reference to the the 12. It was a group of 12. 12 was significant as a number for uh, the people of Israel. It has the connotation of something that is complete. We often say that seven is the complete number, but 12 also had that sense uh, for the Jews. Um, So there, there was no accident that the Lord selected 12. And if you remember back to one of our earlier talks, Luke 6 was the time when the Lord spent all night in prayer and then came down and called the 12 to him out of the group of followers and gave them special commission. But they didn't go anywhere at that time. They, they were to stick close to him. We know that this is the group of apostles because in verse 10, it says that the apostles returned and told him. So the 12 here is the same group. It's not another 12 that were just randomly selected. This is the 12 who are known as the apostles that the Lord had gathered to himself. He's taken some time from Luke chapter six to Luke chapter nine to get these men ready for the mission that he had for them. The word apostle means a messenger or a sent one, one with a particular purpose. And these apostles were men who had been selected by God himself. God the Son, Jesus Christ, with special mission and special purpose. And they weren't to know it just yet, but they were to continue this after the Lord Jesus had been through death and had been raised from the dead and had returned to the glory of heaven. They were to continue on in a unique office of being an apostle, a sent one. In Acts chapter 1, Luke tells us that because of Judas turning away and never really having trusted in who Jesus was. He lost his place among that group. And there was a time of prayer and a waiting for God to point out what man should replace him. And there were some qualifications given in in Acts chapter one that had to be somebody who had been with Jesus from the day um, day of his baptism and had seen his life, but most importantly, had been an eyewitness of his resurrection. So there were some criteria and some very important things that were necessary to be an apostle. And that's why the office of apostle is something that no longer persists today. Paul and Barnabas are referred to as apostles. Paul had a very direct experience of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. But the office does not continue on. The men that were selected by the Lord had a particular purpose they were going to fulfill. And in Ephesians chapter 2, it says that the churches of God are founded on the, the foundation of the apostles and the New Testament prophets. The things that the apostles taught were the things of Jesus, attested in that first century by prophetic 
gift that was given to people to authenticate God's message. And that was the basis and foundation. Their teaching about Christ was the basis and foundation for what would grow into churches of God, the expression of Christianity according to the New Testament pattern. We see in Acts that their responsibility was unique because care for the churches was transferred to elders. The office of apostle was not transferable. We're going to leave that bit there for for now, but I want us to see here, there is a lesson for us that the Lord didn't send these men that he had chosen to himself in Luke 6 out rapidly to go and do what he asked them to do here. He asked them to come and spend time with him that they might learn from him. And what did they see? They'd seen all of the miracles that um, we've, we've already considered up to this point. They'd seen Jesus raising two people from the dead. They'd seen him healing people with disability and sickness and illness and disease. They'd seen him cast out demons from people. They'd seen Jesus do things that nobody else in their lifetime had ever been able to do. But you notice here that Jesus calls them together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. What does that tell us? It tells us that Jesus himself had the authority to grant the authority. That tells us something, as Luke wants us to understand it, that he is God. It's no good to send somebody out with the authority to do something if you don't have the authority to give it. But notice that he gives them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. They were given the same power and authority that he himself had been given as a man, God the man in human form, had been given by the authority of God the Father as he himself, as the sent one, the apostle, had come to fulfill God's work on earth. He conferred the same power and authority to these men. That's mind-blowing. You don't just give that to men that you've suddenly selected one day without a little bit of training and a little bit of spending time together. They spent quite a lot of time together and they had experienced what it was like to be with Jesus when he did these things. Imagine then being told you have the same power and authority that you've seen in me. Now go and preach in the villages. Many of us would just sort of shrink back from that and go, no way. That's unreal to consider that that would be possible in me. And that's not the sense we get. I know we have to be careful not to read between the lines here, but it says they departed and went through the villages in verse 6, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. (coughs) The ability to do miracles in this period of time by the Lord Jesus and by the apostles was to authenticate the message that God was sharing through Jesus and then would be more widely spread through the apostles. So they went and they were able to have power over demons to cast them out of people. They were able to go and to heal diseases. But that was a support for what it was that they were really tasked with doing, which was to go and to speak. Notice verse 2, to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Two things went together then. 
The Lord Jesus sent these men out <coughs> that they might proclaim the kingdom of God. Notice in verse 6, it says they went preaching the gospel. Will you allow me a little diversion here for a moment? It says later in the chapter, you might have picked up on it in verse 11, that when the crowd gathered that Jesus would later feed, it says he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. So you have him telling the apostles to go and proclaim the kingdom of God. You have him teaching the people about the kingdom of God. That comes across very strongly in Luke's writings. He uses the phrase kingdom of God 31 times in his gospel. It's a major theme for him. But there sandwiched in verse 6 in the middle is the expression, they went preaching the gospel. I want to stress this. The good news of God is about his kingdom. We can sometimes be guilty of saying that the good news of God is about us preaching that people would be saved from the consequences of their sin. That is good news. Of course it is. It's bad news when we understand that we are a guilty sinner before a holy God and that that will keep us from knowing the delight of God's goodness and his presence for eternity and to know that he has sent a saviour who would die for our sins in our place. That is good news in contrast to the dire news of our sinfulness and God's judgment against it. But here we're told, as the New Testament makes abundantly clear, that the good news is not limited to that. The good news is all about God's kingdom, the kingdom of God. That's why Luke is caught up with it in his writings here, and also it features through the other book that he wrote, which is the Acts of the Apostles. God's desire is that people experience the fullness of his kingdom. How can we describe the kingdom of God? I think a reading of scripture in its fullness helps us to understand it because it's not a new concept that comes to us here in the New Testament. It's actually a development of, a, of, a, of something that is there in strong, bold letters throughout the Old Testament as well. It's where God dwells among and with his people. And you see that in the Old Testament when God brings Israel together to himself. And he says, I will dwell among you and I will be with you. God's desire is to have a people who will be his among whom he will dwell and he will be with them. We see that back in Exodus. And we see it's wonderful culmination and eternal perfection at the end of our Bibles in Revelation 21 and 22. It describes there that the people that God has gathered to himself, he will be there in the midst of them and that will be the state forever, the eternal glorious kingdom of God. So that's one aspect of the kingdom of God and that's why it's good news is because God has a desire to gather a people among whom he will dwell and be with them. The second aspect I've put down here is that it's a place where God's absolute rule and unassailable authority, because of who he is, where that is loved, honoured and enjoyed. God, with Old Testament Israel, gathered them together and said, I want to be among you. I've gathered you for my praise and my glory. 
and I will take my place among you and be with you. And for my presence to be there and for that to be enjoyed, there is the necessity that you live according to my kingdom rules. It can't be any other way. God, the king of everything, the great creator who needs nothing, invites us to come from the place where we have turned away from all of his goodness and says, come and enjoy my goodness and my presence and all of that which is associated with living in my kingdom. That's why the kingdom of God is good news. Because when we understand that the things that God instructs us in his word are not limitations, uh, they are not meant to spoil our joy, they're actually meant to fulfill our joy, then we realize that it's good news. So yes, the good news begins with the reality that Christ is the savior that God has provided, that he might gather a people to himself among whom he will dwell, who will honor his absolute rule and his unassailable authority, who will love that, honor that, and enjoy it. You see that in Revelation 21, 22. Just the joy of the expression of God's people for eternity, enjoying God. He is the absolute focus forever. What about today? If you do a little study through the book of Luke, you get this tension about the kingdom of God and the way he speaks of it. You get this tension about the kingdom of God. Quite often it speaks of something yet future, which we would see fulfilled in Revelation 21 and 22. But also you get this, this tension that pulls against that in a sense that says there's something now to be enjoyed. That God's good news is for when the, when the apostles went out preaching about the kingdom of God, they were speaking about what God was going to do in the future. But that didn't mean it was all future. It meant there was something for them to enjoy now. And we see that worked out for us in the New Testament. And the references to the people that God gathers to himself. And I've put it this way in my notes. The expression of God's kingdom now is seen among those believers in the present day, who in loving obedience submit to God's rule in their lives and in collective service. So there is the not yet that is coming in all of its perfection, but there is the now as well, that God wants us to enjoy the fullness of his kingdom, authority and rule and presence in our present experience. Now, why do I say it's something now? If you might say to me that the majority sense of the talk about the kingdom of God seems future, is you go to Revelation chapter 1, and Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, John comes out with a declaration about what God has done to gather a people to himself to be a kingdom. And it's speaking of present day reality. You line that up alongside 1 Peter 2, and the language from verse 4 all the way down through to verse 9 and 10 and you have echoes of what God did with Israel in the Old Testament that is fulfilled in a people presently, in Peter's day then, and we would see it today, people taking God's word and seeing the glorious joy of his kingdom rules and saying, 
I will joyfully live according to what you've given here, God, that I might have you. That's why the kingdom of God is good news. Just want to make this point before we move on from this section, just very quickly. The apostles were told to go with nothing. Interestingly, one of the key things was not to go with a bag. Now, the word that sits there in the Greek that has been translated as bag has, has a link with the bag that um, philosophers or even uh, preachers sometimes would, would go around with and as they would ply their trade, they would have their bag ready to receive some money. And the Lord says, you'll have none of that. The Lord said in other places, you've freely received something, you freely give it. But there is a lesson here that you see that the people who responded to the good news and realized that the kingdom of God was greater than the kingdoms of men and the kingdoms of our own little lives and preserving our own wealth, they were happy to welcome the apostles in and to share with them whatever they needed for that period of time. And if towns rejected, notice it was towns rejected, the people in their masses would follow those that would speak in their behalf and be taken away in judgment. The removal of the dust off the feet was something that the Jews would do when they were leaving a Gentile town. Because in their arrogance, they said, well, God has nothing to do with the Gentiles. He's all for us, the Jews. Jesus is opening their eyes here. But here was this removal of the dust off their feet saying there, there's a judgment here for people who reject. And probably many were taken away because the spokespeople in the town would speak in their behalf. How fearfully we see that in our world today. The people will follow the, the loudest voice and disregard the good news that is the kingdom of God. It happens in Christendom as well. The apostles trusted in Jesus through their obedience to his command. They expressed their trust in Jesus by obeying. They went. And they believed that he had the authority and the power to confer it on them. And they responded by obedience. Luke is wanting us to see, I think, that disciples are to be people who will trust absolutely in the power and authority of Jesus and go, even if it means we go with nothing, knowing that he will provide all that he has said he will provide. What about the feeding of the big crowd then? Let's move on to that quickly. It's, it appears in all four gospel accounts. It's important for that reason. And I think in recent times, my eyes have been opened to how spectacular and important this feeding of the 5,000 Sunday school story is. I actually think it's the culmination of the ministry of miracles that the Lord undertook. Now, I, I've already mentioned that um, he'd, well, Luke has shared with us how the Lord dealt with sickness, disability, casting out of demons, controlling nature. I mean, that's mind-blowing when he can calm a storm, of course, and raising two dead people to life. Luke has been careful to show us how great Jesus is. And to help us along with the disciples come to start to ask the questions that Herod was asking and the people were asking, well, who is this? He's helping us to come to this. But I think this miracle ratchets things up a level and takes us into something that God doesn't want us to miss. The people come 
and the Lord welcomed them. <clears throat> the Lord will welcome those who come to him. He said that those that the Father has given me will come to me and I'll never drive them away. You sense the Lord is calling you to himself and you sense the call of God to come to Jesus, then go because he will never turn you away. He will welcome you. And he spoke to them of the kingdom of God. Welcome. Now let me tell you about the kingdom of God. Now it was no quick thing. Notice this. They had gathered and they were on that mountainside and this went on into the evening. So the teaching about the kingdom of God and the, the glory of what God wants us all to enjoy is not something that you can share in a 20 minute homily. I fear today that we fall into the trap of thinking that we can know it all through sharing things that last five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes at most. It's a lifetime of learning. The disciples had spent time with Jesus so they might know what it was that they were preaching when they went out with the message of the kingdom of God. It takes time to know the things of God's kingdom. And the disciples are the ones who have the concern for the people. Uh, Lord, we need to send them away. They need to go and find lodging. So these people have come from other areas. So they need to find somewhere to stay tonight. And they need to go and find food. And the Lord says one of the most peculiar statements in all of the Gospels, I think. You give them something to eat. I scratch my head on that one frequently. But I've probably come to an idea here. Not an idea, an understanding for myself anyway. The Lord is just trying to point out that it was humanly impossible and he was going to do what only God could do. When he says, you give them something to eat, I think he's making the point, you just watch and see. You can't do what I'm about to do. And what does he do? He takes up the five loaves and the two fish and the other accounts and the other gospels tell us where that came from, the little boy's lunch and so on, or what was left of his lunch. And the Lord in orderly fashion tells them to sit in about groups of 50 to make it easy to distribute it. And however it happens, uh, he's able to break the loaves and the fish. And it says they all ate and were satisfied. Nobody lacked anything after the Lord had provided. And in fact, the apostles got something out of it too. The little baskets that they, that people often say, well, where did these baskets come from? Uh, people in those days would have carried around in their sort of knapsack things a, a little basket which they would have used. It's a bit of a convenience thing for carrying things if you bought it in the market or whatever. Uh, see it in the Philippines, people have certain items that they carry with them everywhere just in case they need to carry items or eat out of it or something like that. Similar type of idea. So the disciples must have come to the Lord with the five loaves and two fish in their little baskets because that was an easy way of taking stuff and distributing it. And as they go around cleaning up afterwards, they're, oh, we've got enough too. Why is this, as I've claimed, the climax of the Lord's ministry of miracles? It's because it's an echo of what God did for his people when he had rescued them from Egypt and brought them through the Red Sea and there was a nation of significant size that had nothing to eat. Humanly impossible. God intervened and provided food for 40 years. Are we right to read that into it? I think we are. This is, this is a, a group of the Jews, could be 10,000 people, and the Lord says to the apostles, you give them something to eat. That's, that's just laughable. 
You know, I'm not laughing at what the Lord says. It's just, we get the point. We can't do anything here. And the Lord says, let me show you what I can do. And he is the one who provides for his people. He had provided, notice this theme in this section, he had provided for the apostles. He promised, you go with nothing and you'll get everything you need. Here he says to the people who were listening to him teach about the kingdom of God. He says, you've got nothing. I can give you everything you need. It's an echo of what the Lord God had done for his people all down the history, the people of Israel. Here is the provider, God. I think the feeding of the 5,000 plus people, the big crowd, is more for the benefit of the disciples than for the people themselves. They were beneficiaries. But in the course of this section, we're being carried along by Luke with the disciples to a point of answering the question, who is Jesus? And the disciples are standing there with their 12 baskets full of themselves, eating and thinking. <laughs> this is unmistakable. Peter's confession then in verse 20, you are the Christ of God. You are the one that God has marked out in the Old Testament scriptures as the promised one who will come and bring victory to his people and provide for his people in a kingdom in all of its perfections that's described in Ezekiel and Isaiah and in other places in Jeremiah too. You're that one. But he hadn't understood what we're yet to get to was that this Christ of God had come with a greater mission than to bring that kingdom to the Jews. He had come with a mission to bring such a kingdom to all people on earth whom God is drawing to himself. And that would require his death. That's for future weeks. The little section, as I said already, about Herod, he's asking the question because the news about what's going on has made it up to the high echelons of society. And he's hearing that people are saying, well, it's John the Baptist. He says, it can't be John the Baptist because I beheaded him. That's a whole wicked um, account in itself. Is this Elijah, the one that God promised in the last couple of verses of the book of Malachi? At the end of our Old Testament, he says, Elijah is going to come. Jesus tells his followers that John the Baptist was like the Elijah that was going to come. He's one of the great prophets. He's greater than that. Here we have Jesus. Through his miracles, through his teaching, through the conferring of his power and his authority, through fulfilling the promises to provide everything that everybody might need, helping his disciples come to the conclusion at last you are the Christ of God. You know, coming to that conclusion ourselves changes absolutely everything for us. If Jesus Christ is the Christ of God, the one who will bring his people into the glories of the eternal kingdom of God, then we need fear nothing at all. Because repeatedly in this section anyway, he has said he will provide for those who are his everything that is needed. No wonder Paul can say, it's in the, the letter to the church in Philippi, isn't it? My God will supply every need of yours. 
through Christ Jesus. God will give us everything in Christ. And Paul also said in Romans 8, He delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him give us all things? God is going to give everything to us. And it's through this Christ, the one he has promised. The disciples had to exercise trust in the claims and the promises of Jesus to come to a fuller understanding of the identity of Jesus. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, oh, you're switching the gospel around here. Is it not that we need to learn the identity of Jesus and then trust him? I'm not sure. I think to demonstrate our faith in God and his Christ that he has provided requires us to live in such a way that we trust everything that he tells us in here. When the question comes to us then, who do you say that I am? Jesus, I know through experience that you are the Christ of God. He's the Christ who would give himself. It will come to the cross and we're going to get there next week because the Lord switches in his language from teaching about the kingdom of God to then telling the disciples particularly that he must die. Paul was the one who said, we preach Christ and him crucified. For us to be brought into the fullness of all that God longs for us, that we might trust him through experience and by demonstration of that, by faithful living every day, knowing in increasing measure the identity of our Savior. It required the cross to bring us into that. That the sin that blinds us to the glory of God could be removed and that he would take us forward. I've just written here, it was through their obedient response and trust of Jesus as he sent them out that they got closer to learning about Jesus' identity. Maybe for, for us too, the challenge is the same as disciples to step out in faith on the basis of what Jesus says, knowing all the while who he really is. He is the one who is God's king. So active service and time spent with Jesus brings conviction regarding his identity and his sufficiency. And that changes life.